Ross Beirut is a central component to this podcast. And for, for regular listeners, uh, going back in particular to the earlier episodes, um, the stories link back to that part of the city. Even the name of the podcast, the Beirut Banyan. These are the banyan trees of AUB. And I guess it's visible from here, the old lighthouse at the end of Bliss Street, just next to the German school. Uh, I mean, I spent years living there, not in the lighthouse itself, but right next door. And that is the part of the city I consider home. And Ras Beirut lost an important uh, piece to its history, uh, the Bristol Hotel. I actually did not know that it had shut down. I sort of saw it on the news by accident earlier today. I am not, I mean, I won't even claim any authority on the Bristol Hotel. I'll just share a personal story that uh, that links to the hotel in, in two ways. And uh, the first way is I actually, it didn't occur to me until I saw the name and thought about the hotel uh, for for a few minutes, I, I kind of recalled a memory that, and this is maybe, this is either July or August 1991. It's my family's first trip back to Lebanon after the Civil War ended. We had visited Tripoli during the Civil War, and we would visit regularly, actually, uh, if not every summer, almost every summer. But we wouldn't fly into Beirut. We used to fly into Damascus. And we'd take the long, long taxi journey uh, from Damascus through Homs, Hama, sort of heading north and then northwest to the Lebanese border from the north and then accessing that border into Tripoli. And this was a very, very long journey, I think. I mean... I maybe 12 hours long, if not longer. And um, it was just, it was too difficult in those years to fly into Beirut. Not because we were, I mean, not be, you could do that. You could fly into Beirut and the airport was open at times. But getting from Beirut to Tripoli was so dangerous. And this is, of course, Civil War Lebanon, the Green Line, and just a divided country. It was riskier to go from Beirut to Tripoli than it was from Damascus to Tripoli. And uh, I knew Tripoli as a kid, but these were summer months and they were mostly just visiting relatives, if not only visiting relatives. The, um, the first time I went to Beirut was in the summer of 1991, and it was the first time my father returned to Beirut after the war ended. And it was the first time he had been back to Beirut since, since I believe, 1975. My parents left Lebanon in 1976. I don't think they set foot in Beirut from maybe mid 1975. I think that was the last time my father actually uh, was in Beirut. For the remainder of the period, time was was up north in Tripoli. So that was, I mean, since the Civil War started, really. And it, it sort of occurred to me today, that, and I 
just didn't remember this fully, that the first night we spent in Beirut was at the Bristol Hotel. The Bristol is one of those few hotels that made its way through the entire Civil War, and uh, it was open. And, you know, I'm thinking back, I think we spent the entire duration of the trip at that hotel. We didn't stay anywhere else. And that week or whatever it was, 10 days, was the last time I went into the Bristol Hotel. So, nearly 30 years ago. Of course, I always knew the Bristol Hotel, but, I mean, I knew it as as a landmark. And growing up in Beirut, uh, we grew up in Talat al-Khayat. We, I mean, I I grew up in Talat al-Khayat. And uh, I would walk at times from that neighborhood to my school on the Corniche and ACS. And I have no idea why I used to do this, but, I mean, these are memories that came back as well that may have been 14 or 15. I mean, older, I, uh, I would literally get up early in the morning and just start walking to school. I didn't need to do this. I don't think there was any really sensible reason to do this. I just sort of, maybe I considered it exercise. I have no idea. Um, but I would walk, and it's a rather long walk, from up the hill, up Talat al-Khayat, and literally up the hill, up the Talli. And I always knew that I was halfway through the journey when I'd reached the Bristol Hotel, sort of the intersection, if you will, of Verdun and of Hamra, and uh, sort of like the midpoint. And from there on, it was always sort of a relief because walking from the Bristol to ACS, that straight shot, almost straight shot, was a downhill journey. So uh, sort of walking sort of into Ras Beirut, but heading down towards the sea to ACS was always a relief. So that was my sort of reference point. I'm halfway there, and it's going to be easier from here. And then later, driving in Beirut and maybe uh, going out more and spending more time uh, trying to find a parking spot, in particular in Hamra at night, um, sort of always fail at finding parking in Hamra and have to sort of wander around until you found something. And usually, usually, uh, next to the Bristol, you'd find parking. So that was always sort of the... I'll park next to next to the Bristol to get to Hamra. And yeah, that's it. I mean, I honestly don't think I ever went back into the hotel. I don't know anyone that stayed there either. Never really thought about it. It's just there. It's always there. Uh, but it's important to Ras Beirut's history. And it became it became an important meeting point for the beginning of a political movement following the Civil War. And it ties back into the episode I released about Basil Flehan. And Basil's story, his political journey, the last months of his life, um, he's associated with the Bristol Hotel for a very important meeting that took place there. In December 2004, a political exploration 
or a uh, an important sort of the beginning of an alliance that uh, that would later sort of add to the March 14 coalition. And Basil Flehan was uh, was representing Rafi Hariri. He um, was a senior advisor to Rafi Hariri, and he was a trusted confidant. And um, he uh, he was there because Rafi Hariri would not be able to make an appearance there. I think it would have been. Uh, I mean, it would have been very. It would have been impossible for Rafi Hariri to attend. And this is, of course, at a time where Hariri is testing the waters and pushing against the Syrian regime and beginning to push aggressively. And um, this is, uh, I mean, Basif Flehan is literally there representing a larger-than-life figure, a controversial one, but a larger-than-life post-war preeminent politician and prime minister. I remember Basil Flehan, at least in a in a in a personal way, from this probably was maybe a few weeks, if not a f- maybe just a few days, before that trip to Lebanon in 1991. And that was the first time I met him, and I'm maybe 10, 11 years old, I'm very young, and I uh, I meet him in the suburbs of Washington D.C where we were living, and Basil Flehan was in the IMF World Bank circuit, and uh, and I remembered him as being a, just a very, just a very, very nice, sweet, a, a, a generous man, and I, I use the word generous because I just remember him giving me his time, and you know, it's strange when you think back to these things, I think, I think he spoke to me like I was an adult. And that was a bit unique that, you know, you'd have sort of a, uh, an older, sort of an older man sort of talking to you like you're his peer. And I, I, that, I took that memory with me later when I saw him again. Uh, it was probably 10 years later when I was in Beirut and I, I sort of spoke to him and I just remembered even, he, he would treat you like you were, you were worth there was no show. He meant it. He really gave you his time. And he listened. And he sort of, uh, you could tell that there, there were, he just wasn't distracted when he, would, when he would talk. And I liked that. He could sort of, uh, he took interest in what you were saying. So Basil Flehan, I mean, is sort of that kind of person to me, and he's always been that way. It's sort of a family friend, but a not the typical Lebanese politician, if you will. And, uh, yeah, the Bristol Hotel becomes that sort of convergence of ideas. You have the Lebanese right, the nationalist camp, associated, of course, with many things that happened during the Civil War and I think maybe struggling to find its way in the post-war era with Syrian occupation and uh, trying to maybe, in a way, sort of distance itself from the war years and looking for friends, looking for allies in a very difficult environment. 
you have the secular left, which is opposed, of course, to to the Lebanese right and nationalist camp on on on. I think on ideological grounds, and and they're not a really a, they're not heavily heavily they're not damaged by the war years per se, not nearly as the uh, the say this without getting too sort of stuck in the civil war, but the secular left associated with the likes of Samir Asir was, I think, far more post-war sort of scene than anything else. And also in full disagreement with the Hadidi camp in terms of economics, that I think they were probably the most vocal, most vocal critics of, uh, of Hadidi's economic policy. And, uh, I mean... One example is uh, is just you know the 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 debt and the the betting on regional peace and sort of borrowing too much money and and hoping that long term this would work and maybe uh, you know the early nineteen nineties that kind of uh, optimism with regional peace and Madrid and then Oslo and, and all that kind of, maybe to a degree wishful thinking maybe, and sort of hope and bet that long-term the country and Beirut would become the financial capital and sort of the, the an important city once again for the Middle East and just didn't happen. But the secular left also disagreed on other economic policies as well and it wasn't just that. But anyway, they, these are sort of different camps. But they agree that the Syrian regime needs to go. And they saw it, that a post-war order would not be possible with Syrian occupation. Would not be a post-war independent Lebanon would not be possible. A sovereign Lebanon would not be possible. Just by default, you can't get there. And uh, maybe they also saw that the minor issues are contaminated as well. That uh, the breathing space the Syrians allowed for was in itself corrupt and in itself not uh, not the kind of country you would want to see emerging from a nightmare, a 15-year war. It's almost like a, a perverted reinterpretation of what uh, Lebanon should be. And uh, that sort of it, the zenith, if you will, of that is, of course, uh, Hadidi's assassination and the weeks that lead to March 14. And Basil Flehan dies as uh, he miraculously survives the attack against Hadidi, but he succumbs to his wounds, his burns. And uh, Basil Flehan is himself a Ras Beiruti and a, an unusual liaison if you will uh for a what we now cons- what we now think of as the hadidi camp and that's an important distinction here because not too long ago things were not as quote sectarian uh you could have a protestant ras beiruti uh, representing rafi hadidi in the future movement and that was a healthy thing and um it was good. It was good to have a senior advisor as sort of not from Saida, not Sunni. And I, I, I apologize for saying these sectarian things here. But but when it comes to Basif Lehan's key role in the Bristol Hotel meeting, I think it's just a very important footnote. And it's not that long ago. 
So you have, uh, I mean, you have the tragic end to Basil Flehan. And um, in 2020, you have the shutting down of the Bristol Hotel. And I think, I think it's important to note something. It's, it's an important, uh, it's an important point. I had several conversations in the last 24 hours about the Lebanese domestic political scene. And these are with friends. These are with guests I've interviewed on the podcast. And I keep coming back to the same point. And I think, I think I'm in the minority because I'm sort of, I keep repeating this and I'm, doesn't seem to gain any traction among, uh, among the people I'm speaking with, that it's sort of, uh, I may not be seeing this entirely the right way. So it's almost like a friendly disagreement, but it's a repeatedly, it's, it's a continuous disagreement. These people, Basil Flehan, my father, Samir Asir, um, and the string of assassinations that happened, and of course Rafi Hadidi and all that in between, I think it's impossible today to properly explore ways out of the current mess in Lebanon, the current economic mess, the financial collapse, the lira plunging to 3,100 or 200 lira to the dollar today, it will keep falling. Any sort of domestic concern which is legitimate and any fight against corruption, against crony capitalism, uh, against authoritarianism, against any any anything that is just in the country, I think it is, and I say this, I say this knowing that I am in the minority, at least with the people I'm speaking with. I think it's impossible to get there. I think you need to tackle the issues that all these people that were killed, that they they paid the ultimate price. And trying to reestablish something, which I think is a necessity, before you can get to the other issues. Sovereignty. Independence. A legitimate government and a sole authority. You know, it's... These were critics of the Syrian regime in late 2004, early 2005. And they were fighting to rebuild Lebanon's independence and sovereignty and state rule and borders. And they saw the Syrian army and they saw the Syrian intelligence and they saw the Syrian regime as a paramount obstacle to getting there. And that's what the the movement was about getting Syria out. Syrian army left, and most Syrian intelligence, for the most part, left. But the authority, the the sovereignty, the independence was never achieved. The Syrian legacy in Lebanon 
never ended. And it's been replaced. It's been replaced with a Iranian Hezbollah order and with an Assad regime that has survived. And it has kept Lebanon as part of a much larger regional conflict. And I don't think you would... These people were trying to neutralize the country completely from regional problems. You can't solve every regional problem, and you will never be able to get those problems solved first and then sort of, you know, focus in on Lebanon. It's just going to be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. These people wanted to get Lebanon out of the problem completely and neutralize the country completely. And the culmination of that, sort of the post-2005 thinking was the Ba'abda Declaration in 2012, meant to keep Lebanon out of the Syrian war completely. Of course, it was just, uh, it was never followed through. Hezbollah never was serious about staying away from the Syrian war. But that shielding Lebanon and then building a country, one government, one army, a functioning state, getting out of the warlike era, uh, not depending on a proxy militia to defend your southern border, being able to criticize Israel, and at the same time consider Hezbollah's weapons as illegitimate. These are not big, these are not very, uh, it's not hard to accept both. A very harsh critique at what Israel has done to the country and not wanting Israeli interference or jets over or violation, period, and also not wanting a proxy militia to determine uh, how your country operates, its security, its foreign policy, period. So you can say both at the same time. And you can believe both at the same time. And I think... Uh, I think... All that in the background, thinking about what these people died for, and then not being able to discuss that today, a reluctance to kind of just focus in on the domestic, economic, and very domestic social issues and, and political issues. I think you just it simply will not be possible. You cannot get to those issues. But if you want a country that works, and if you want if you want a, a citizen to feel like the state is the responsible authority and they are responsible for at least abiding by the rules and you have to, you have to move on. You have to let go of a militia's weapons. You can't have a militia that is preserving a rotten regime today. A militia that is hell-bent on preserving Iranian hegemony and Assad's survival. You can't have that kind of operation within your own borders and just sort of ignore it and just sort of look away and say, let's focus on, uh, on, um, on things that are important, corruption, uh, theft, r rampant, rampant uh, mismanagement. You can't sort of I think these are things you just can't tackle while leaving weapons and, and, and all those issues sort of exempt from the story. 
and let alone a militia that has spent the last decade preserving that regime's rule in the most violent ways possible. So, all that said, I thought I would uh, sort of carry on with a piece that my father wrote. It goes back to the blog that I started reading from two nights ago. And it all ties in together. I think it's sort of a, it's a, it's a way of looking at the geopolitics and focusing in on why sovereignty is important and why neutrality is important and uh, focusing in as well on what all those people were trying to do in late 2004 with the Bristol meeting. It is really a harsh critique of the Assad regime. And uh, it's a post that my father wrote in September 2013. And um, if you'll let me, I'll share it here. And uh, looking now back at the blog, this was the last blog post that he shared. So uh, this is the last words from the blog. Five facts and a conclusion. Fact number one. A united and peaceful Syria ruled by Assad is simply not possible anymore. It has been like that for some time. The status quo ante cannot be restored. Iran and Hezbollah realize this more than anyone else. Fact number two. The Assad regime is incapable of adapting to a power-sharing arrangement as contemplated by the Geneva Principles. The regime is brittle and fragile, as it is brutal and ruthless. It can break, but cannot bend. Assad knows it, and Iran knows it. Fact number three. A free and democratic Syria would be a strategic disaster for Tehran. If given a choice, the Syrian people would be certain to sever their country's geopolitical alliance with the Islamic Republic of Iran and stop providing a geographic corridor to Iran's military arm in Lebanon. Fact number four. Iran's second-best alternative to the irretrievable status quo ante is simply a protracted war. This is now Iran's victory strategy. A bloody and chaotic Syrian theater will still be usable by Iran and Hezbollah more flexibly and efficiently than their Western enemies. Remember the civil war in Lebanon. Fact number five. A protracted war in Syria will help terrorism flourish even more. Both the kind manipulated and used by the regime to blackmail the West and the authentic strain that festers and spreads in open wounds, like opportunistic parasites. Conclusion If Iran's militant ideology and hegemonic ambitions and radical, quote, Islamic terrorism are the two strategic threats that need to be overcome, then the policy towards Syria should aim at bringing to a quick end both the devastating war and Assad's rule. Humanitarian considerations aside, any policy that is based on the premise that a protracted conflict in Syria is costless, is misguided and dangerous. It is exactly what Iran wants, and it will help the scourge of terrorism to thrive. It all goes back to the way Lebanon deals with regional problems and the inability to protect Lebanon from those problems. And um, I actually really think today that it's not about, there's a lot of, uh, I think, short-sightedness in, in thinking that 
you can just narrow in on domestic issues and ignore this. And I think uh, if once this pandemic passes, if that sort of background problem, which is the elephant in the room, if it is not brought into the discussion, and if it is not sort of, uh, if people are afraid to discuss it, then I think it's just impossible. It's impossible to, to move on from the Civil War era. You need to be able to discuss this issue openly and not worry that this is going to be too sensitive of a subject because it's a subject that has paralyzed and it has plunged Lebanon into a very long, protracted problem, which is it will never be able to function. It will never be able to function like a normal country. It's okay to say goodbye to the Bristol Hotel. It made its way through 70 years of a roller coaster of history. Um, it is a, it's a sad ending. It's a hotel that could not survive the current economic collapse and add to that, of course, the coronavirus and no tourism whatsoever. So it is a very sad ending, especially to Ross Beirut. I think one should not let go of what the Bristol meeting meant for post-war and post-Syrian army withdrawal Lebanon. And I think it's equally important to remember that that issue is still paramount to rebuilding Lebanon and ending properly, once and for all, the Civil War era. Thank you.